today we are starting our series on the book of Job. Um, now try to, try to hold yourself back from the excitement of diving into the book of Job. If you don't know about the book of Job, I'm so sorry. Um, and if you do, I'm, I'm also very sorry. Um, no, we, we've, been, we've been planning this for about six months. And uh, as a teaching team, uh, we have a teaching team here at Living Streams. Uh, and it's uh, David and Alec and Jeff and myself. And uh, we started talking about this book six months ago. We started saying, you know, it seems like the time uh, to talk about Job. It felt like the kind of prophetic moment in our culture that we needed to talk about it. Um, but we knew it's going to be a difficult book. And so we were like, okay, we need six months to really dive into this thing before we bring it on a Sunday morning. Um, but as soon as I heard that song and I heard that they had written it kind of like a f- you know, few weeks ago, um, even up until this morning, it was so funny. They were, they were playing through it and Dave was like, is that the word or was that the word? So like they were changing the song even this morning. Um, but it reminded me that the Lord is with us, the Lord's behind us, that this series of Job, it is, it's not escaping me that it's Pentecost Sunday, uh, which if you know, Pentecost Sunday is amazing. It's where we celebrate the Holy Spirit. We remember Acts 2 when the Holy Spirit fell and the tongues of fire and all of that. It's so beautiful. And uh, it's also the day we're starting Job. And um, I thought, Lord, is this a mistake? You know, this is, maybe we need to like pull the, you know, ejection cord. Um, but no, I felt like this morning that the Lord said, this is a season of preparation. Um, preparation for those of us that are in the kingdom, and Job is part of that preparation. Uh, Job is part of that, that desire for us to dive into the hard spaces and say, God, prepare us, like boost us up, get us ready for whatever may come, and Lord, whatever comes, we will serve you, we'll follow you to the end of our days. This is, this is really our hope as we're going through the book of Job. Uh, but right off the bat, what I want to say is, I, I was thinking through this, and I thought, what don't we want out of this series in the book of Job? Um, what we don't want is to dogpile all of us that are already going through a hard season. You know what I mean? Um, that is not our goal. Our goal is not to go, hey, it's been really rough. Now let's read Job. Um, it's not some sort of like beating ourselves up just for the fun of it. Um, we don't want that. There, there are some things in Job that are, are really hard, and we're going to talk about some of those things today. Uh, there's some tensions in Job that don't get resolved. I'm so sorry. If you like things to get like wrapped up in a neat package, Job is not that. Um, but we, w- what we want to do is engage in part of our goal at Living Streams is to engage in society's pain. So if you're like me, I'm, I'm feeling like, man, there's this, this background noise of darkness, this background noise of anxiety, this background noise of we don't know what's coming around the corner. And some of us maybe were watching the news too much, which I'm probably the most guilty of in this room. Um, And you keep going to the news going, maybe today will be different. And it's way worse than it was the day before. Um, That is just the way that it goes in this season. But it is only to serve to remind us that our hope is not to be anchored into the world anyway. Our hope, our joy is not anchored into the good news that we hear in the news. It's anchored in the good news that we find in the gospel. That is what we need to anchor ourselves to. And Job is one of those beautiful books. So we're not trying to dogpile you, but we're not trying to um, just blow past the pain that people are feeling. We have to engage in it. We have to know what the Lord is saying. And then we have to strengthen ourselves. Part of what... Oh, hey. Uh, we just finished a, uh, a series called Strengthening Yourself in the Lord. 
Um, and that's what we want, right? We want to be strong in the Lord. We want to be able to take whatever the Lord has to, uh, in this next season, whatever the enemy is going to dish out at us, and we go, we are strong in the Lord. So we want spiritual resiliency out of the sermon series. The way that David says that I love, he says spiritual buoyancy is what we're really after. Uh, we want to, no matter what wave crashes over us, we might go thrown under the water just for a little bit, but we bounce back up. And not in a like, a, like trying to just deny the pain in the world. No, in a real, genuine, beautiful way. Say, no, no matter what you've got to throw at me, enemy, I'm going to bounce back. So we're trying to create muscle memory, you know, like right now maybe it's like uh, we're not quite sure what's going to come, but can we create muscle memory, God-centered muscle memory that we could bounce back from whatever the enemy is going to hit us with? And that is our heart with the book of Job. Um, now, the main misnomer of the book of Job, uh, maybe somebody's told you, hey, if you want to know why bad things happen to good people, read the book of Job. And I'm here to tell you that that would be a big mistake. <laughs> that is not what the book of Job is about. If you're going through a really hard time, someone might go, hey, read the book of Job. Don't do that. Don't do that. That's, that's not necessarily the, the point of the book of Job. Um, the book of Job is this engaging in this deep, deep question that we ask ourselves of why do we go through the pains that we go through? Um, and we can't come up with simple answers from the book of Job. We've been going through it for the last six months, and I feel like every week I read Job or I dive into some new, new thing about Job, I go, oh, I didn't think of it that way. It's, it's beautiful. There are things in the book of Job that are really good, but you've got to be able to go through it in a way that, with the right lens in terms of understanding what Job is all about. Uh, one, one book that's been really helpful for us is this book called Trusting God in the Darkness uh, by Christopher Ashe. Uh, great resource. We even bought some to sell, but second service, I'm so sorry, first service bought all the copies. Uh, so next week, we'll make sure and have some more stocked up. Uh, we just sell them at cost, uh, but we think this is a really good resource in terms of understanding the book of Job, not just the difficulty in the book of Job, because there's a lot of that, and we're going to talk through that, but also finding Jesus in the book of Job. Some of the questions that we get asked, you know, when we go through it, we don't know. Some of the questions that we come through, Job, are only satiated. This hunger becomes, uh, this thing after we read the book of Job, only becomes satiated through the gospel, through understanding what Jesus did. Now, one thing I think, if you're like me, I, um, I really like neat and tidy answers. Um, when I first came to know Jesus, I, I don't know if I would, it would be fair to say I was an atheist. At some point, I would say I was an atheist, but I don't really know if I had thought through that. Um, but I grew up in a very scientific household. Um, I was the first Christian in the, in the, in the home. And, um, and before I came to know Jesus, one of my favorite books when I was a kid was this page turner called Quasars, Pulsars, and Black Holes. Um, <laughs> it was... Uh, it was one of my favorite books. I don't know why. I, like, I was thumbing through. I was at my parents' house last week. I was thumbing through it. I'm like, really, Ryan? This is what you liked? Um, but it's just diving into the space-time continuum and black holes. And like, there was this, this thing in me, even before I knew Jesus, there was this understanding that there is a mystery in the world around us. Before I knew anything about God, I understood there was mystery in the world around us. But I had such a scientific brain... I would tell myself and my friends and my 
future wife, uh, when we were friends at the time, uh, I would say, I just can't believe in God. I just, it doesn't make any sense to me. I have no place for that, you know. And around high school, um, I met an amazing youth pastor named Joel Fritz, and he told me about Jesus, and my life really changed. And I leveraged, instead of like getting rid of the scientific part of my brain, I leveraged that part into my faith. Started diving into apologetics, and I was reading, you know, there's that book, um, Darwin's Black Box, and you know, like I got really into that stuff. I'm like, there are reasonable answers why I follow God. And I wanted to tell everybody, like, hey, this is why I believe in that. And you know what that's all about? The answer is this, you know? Like, I loved that. And I think at some point, you know, maybe when we're young in the Lord, that's something that we really need. Like, I really need to know, like, why am I anchoring my, my faith into Jesus? And need to know practical ways. Um, but one, one time, my, my, my wife and I, um, we were on staff at a discipleship school, and we had this young student that came, and uh, I was leading him, and his dad had sent him to this discipleship school um, because he started walking, walking away from the Lord. And his dad was a pastor in England, and, um, and he was really worried about his son. So he's like, I'm just going to send him to this discipleship school, and maybe that will help him sift through it. And for me, I felt all the weight of that. You know, like as a leader, I'm like, okay, I'm going to have to solve all this kid's problems. Like, I'm going to have to have an answer for everything, you know. And I would share all the apologetic stuff I knew, and I'm like, this, th this, and this, and this. And, and he'd go, yeah, 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 but what about this? And he would stump me, and I'd go, oh, shoot, I didn't think about that. And then I would study it a little bit, and then next week we'd come back at it and go, you know what, I got an answer for that. And he'd go, well, it doesn't really satisfy me. And I was like, dang it, you know, like every time it's just like he had some sort of thing that was really blocking him from following the Lord. And and I was, I was so sad at the end of our school because he ended up going home and he said, well, thank you very much for all your trying. He didn't walk away from the Lord. He said, I'm just still asking a lot of questions, you know. And I think back on it, and I think kind of maybe in my immaturity in walking with the Lord, I didn't allow for a lot of mystery in following God. You know what I mean? It's like, you follow God, and you're like, I need an answer for this, and I need an answer for that, and I need an answer for this. And then sometimes you come up against something and you go, I don't know. I don't understand. We cannot remove all the mystery of God from us. And if we do, we have this neat and tidy theological package that in the book of Job, they go, God goes, no, 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 that's not right. That's not good. Job kept asking questions. Job was like, God, why did this happen? God, I don't understand. This doesn't make any sense. This seems out of whack. If I'm doing all the right things, why are you punishing me? I don't get it. And at the end of Job, not to give away the ending of Job, but at the end of Job, God goes, I like Job. I like what he had to say, and nothing that he said did he sin at all. But his friends, and we're going to talk more about that in the coming weeks, his friends had this kind of neat and tidy theological package. And he said, you guys need to repent, and I want Job to pray for you, and then I'll forgive you. And we have to be a people, and as we're diving into the book of Job, there are tensions that are going to be created, and I'm so sorry ahead of time if it doesn't feel like they're completely resolved, but that's okay. That's part of following God. There is this tension in that. And I was trying to sum up, like, what is the book of Job? What is this book? And we're going to get to it, I promise you. I'm sorry, I know this intro is very long. Um, this is six months of studying Job all coming out in the, the intro here. Um, the, the book of Job, I was going, how do you sum this book up? And a lot of people go, well, it's, you know how to suffer as a believer or what not to say to a suffering believer. All of those things are really good. 
Maybe it's about the character of God. That's true. You learn a lot about the character of God and the things that he values. But as I was sitting on the book of Job, what I started to realize is I think the book of Job is a book of wrestling. Not like WWE wrestling, like spiritual wrestling. Job is wrestling with God. He's going, I don't get it. I don't understand. And there's no neat and tidy answer in terms of why this is happening to me. I don't get it. But Job kept coming to the table. He kept showing up, going, God, I still don't understand, but I'm here. I'm still talking to you. I don't understand, but I'm here to wrestle this out with you. Doesn't make any sense. And Job is not the only book in the Bible or character in the Bible that's gone through that, right? Read the Psalms. David wrestled a lot with God. There are some very uncomfortable Psalms, I'll tell you. A lot of people go, oh, it's the worship book of the Bible. It is. There's some really great ones. There's some rough ones in there, too. David's like, I don't get it, you know. Jacob, I think, is the best idea of wrestling in the Bible, the best example of wrestling we see. Jacob, when he was wrestling with the Lord, and he's wrestling with uh, most likely this this. Uh, they call it a Christophany. I won't get into it too much. I want to, but I won't get into it. It's basically Jesus showing up in the Old Testament, which is beautiful and wonderful and mysterious and all of that. So Jacob is wrestling with the Lord, and at the end, the Lord blesses Jacob, and he renames him Israel, which means one who wrestles with God, one who struggles with God. That is, Israel is named that. That's what the name means. Like the people of God are named wrestling with God. There is something about that that we have to understand as we go into this book. There's going to create some wrestling. We don't understand everything because we are not God and he is. So that is my long intro to the book of Job. I'm so sorry. Here, let's dive right back in. Uh, Job chapter 1, verse 1. Uh, let's dive in. If you don't know where Job is, go to Psalms and turn left. Um, uh, that's uh, the book of Job. Um, one major thing to understand about this book is 95% of the book of Job is poetry. So you look, you know, like the formatting kind of changes. You see this right here. This is what they would call prose. Uh, this is just kind of setting the stage. There's something almost Shakespearean about the beginning of Job, like this drama that's unfolding, and that you've got that. But then once a little bit later, then the formatting kind of shifts like this. This is all poetry. And 95% of Job is poetry, which I think is fitting when you're talking about why do people suffer. There is heart speaking to heart in poetry. Uh, so you've got to understand that. Uh, the book of Job is most likely, too, the oldest book in the Bible. I'm not saying the story of Job happens before Adam and Eve. That's not true. Uh, but it's, it's most likely the oldest written book in the Bible. So Job probably came before Moses, um, potentially somewhere around Abraham. We don't really know. We don't know who wrote the book of Job, but whoever that person is is highly prophetic because they give us a view of what's going on in heaven. They give us a view of what's going on with Job. And this, this person is highly creative because they wrote most of it in poetry. So that is a backdrop. Let's dive in. Job chapter 1, verse 1. The curtain opens, and we meet a man named Job. There was a man in the land of uh, Uz whose name was Job, and that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. There were born to him seven sons and three daughters. He possessed 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 female donkeys, and very many servants. 
so that the man was the greatest of all the people in the east. His sons used to go and hold a feast in the house, each one on his day, most likely the birthday of that son. Uh, And they would send and invite to their three sisters and eat and drink with them. And when the days of the feast had run their course, Job would send and consecrate them. And he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. And Job said, it may be that my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did continually. So act one, scene one, we meet this guy, Job. He is upright and he's blameless. There's only two other characters in the Old Testament that are referred to as upright and blameless, and that is Noah and Abraham. And Job is one of the three. Uh, Job is referred to in the book of Ezekiel. He's referred to in the, in the New Testament. Um, but Job is upright and blameless. Now, that word upright most likely means that his interactions with his fellow human uh, were upright. They were good. They were right. He didn't cut any corners. He didn't take advantage of anybody. What he said is what he did. He is upright in all of his business dealings, everything. Job is successful but he's also treating people right. He is upright. And he's blameless. Now, some of the translations say he was perfect, but that is an imperfect uh, word picture of what the Bible is saying. Uh, In the original Hebrew, this, this word blameless doesn't mean necessarily morally perfect, though he does have high standard of morals. Later on, Job says, the sins of my youth. So he's not pretending that he's morally perfect, but he is blameless. And in the original Hebrew, blameless comes from this phrase that the the English equivalent would be, what you see is what you get. So Job is a deeply authentic person. This is something that the Lord notices. Like what happens behind the scenes in Job's life is what happens out in front of everybody else. He's not hiding anything. He is blameless. He's laying it all out before the Lord. He is deeply authentic in his relationship with God and desiring more relationship with God. This is one of those things that I think the the more and more I interact with people, this really is such a rare God-given quality for people who are deeply authentic in their relationship with God. And it comes from this deep faith of understanding the Lord sees what's hidden and the Lord sees what's out front. And the deeply authentic person wants both of those to line up. And this is Job. He is, uh, he is upright and blameless. Uh, he fears God. So this is not being afraid of God. It's not like hiding from God. He understands the order of things. He understands that God is much greater than he is, and he orders his life accordingly. He lives under the idea that God is powerful. We would use the word sovereign, that he's in control. Job understands that, and he turns away from evil. This is the moral side of him. He turns away from evil. And this is something that God is pleased with. This is something that gets God's attention. So this is act one, scene one of Job. Let's continue, Uh, starting in verse six. Uh, The curtain closes and then it opens and we've got a change of scenery here. We're up in heaven. And starting in verse six, it says this. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord and Satan also came among them. So the sons of God, this is this idea of these sort of angelic beings. This is not 
the only time in the Bible that uh, this is referred to. It's referred to in Numbers. It's referred to in, in Psalms. This sort of idea of this heavenly council that meets with God and these like kind of high-level angelic beings. This is something that is going on in heaven, right? Like we tend to think of this as like this sort of blurry, foggy thing that's happening up in the clouds. No, there is a spiritual realm and there are spiritual beings that come together and they meet with God in that realm. And among those spiritual beings and among those angelic beings is a character called Satan. Now in Hebrew, it would be referred to as the Satan. So it's not his name, not a, t- like not a title. It's kind of like it's, it's something to explain who this guy is. And it really means like the adversary, somebody who's accusing uh, like in Revelations, it says the, the accuser of the brethren. This is, uh, in Hebrew, it would say the Satan, the Satan, this, this, this being that's there. And we don't understand whether he was invited to this meeting or he crashed it. Either way, it's a bit disconcerting to us that Satan is accessing God this way. And also, if you remember a few weeks back, we were talking about this happens again with Jesus, Right? When Jesus is sitting in front of Peter and he said, Satan came to me and he asked for you, Peter. He wanted to sift you like wheat, but I prayed for you. So there's something going on in this spiritual realm. There are things that are going on that Job has no idea about and that we have no idea about. Um, But there's this thing that is very real and very consequential. So he says uh, to Satan, the Lord said to Satan, starting verse 7, from where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth uh, and walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? If I were Job, I'd be like, thanks a lot, God, for bringing me into this conversation. Uh, That there is none like him in all the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. Then Satan answered the Lord and said, does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands and the possessions, and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. Now, in the beginning of this, you know, it was funny, I was reading this, probably because I have a teenage son, and Satan's answer to to God in the beginning kind of sounds like that. God's like, hey, where have you been? He's like, walking around on the earth, you know? It's like, (laughs) I'm used to my 13-year-old, Toby, what have you been doing, buddy? Stuff, you know, things. And and I thought, maybe this is kind of like a snarky sort of thing. Um, But it kind of, it's echoed again in the New Testament when... when, um, Peter talks about Satan being like a roaring lion that's walking around the earth looking to devour people. Uh, There's all this imagery that's put forward, but Satan is very invested in what's going on in the earth. He spends all of his time walking around, like assessing things. This is something that is part of his nature. And the thing is that Satan brings this thing to, to God that actually sounds very reasonable, right? It's the thing that kind of plagues all of us. He goes, hey... Job loves you and he cares about you, but only because you've given him so many things, you know, only because he's so comfortable. And if you remove that from him, Satan's betting 
that what's going to be revealed in Job deep down is a lack of faith and trust in God, and he will curse God to his face. And the amazing thing is, God gives permission to Satan to take these things from Job. And I think for all of us, again, this is where the easy answer is like, I would love to give you a very easy answer on that, but there's something very sobering about that permission that God gives. But there's also something really good in that too. Um, there is this, uh, we, we call it dualism. This is, um, this, I don't, uh, heresy is a heavy word for it, but it's definitely a theological inaccuracy. Um, to believe that God and Satan are equal beings on the opposite side. You've got good and evil, and God wins some and God loses some. That is not theologically accurate. Satan has to come to God and say, can I do this thing? And God gives permission or he doesn't. Now, a lot of us, we go, gosh, that sets up such a conundrum, right? You're like, well, are you basically causing it, God? But I don't think that's the way that it is. I think this is part of the spiritual order in the world that a lot of us scratch our heads and we go, okay, Lord, I don't understand how this works. But eventually... What we do trust is that God's going to pull around whatever happens for good, right? And this is, this is setting the stage for what is about to happen to Job. Um, the other thing about Satan you get from this is that he is, uh, he's very, um, how do I want to say it? He's very cynical, right? He's like leveraging that cynical mind going, that person doesn't love you at all. He doesn't care about you at all as long as he's comfortable, and God, in a striking, crazy change of events, he goes, all right, I'll bet on that, Job. Or I'll bet on Job. Let's see what happens. So next section, verse 13, uh, all of these things happen, these calamities happen with Job. And it's kind of this alternating human evil strikes him and natural disasters. And eventually, everything that he, ha he has is taken away, including his kids that he really loves, and they die. And at the end of... Job chapter 1, he's gone through all of this pain, and in this one day, in this, like, like any other day of his life, you know, it comes along, and everything bad happens to him, and he's broken, and he's frustrated, and he tears his robe, and he says this thing that is uh, so famous in the book of Job. Uh, in verse uh, 21, he says, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Now Job, he's going through so much pain and so much anguish, and the thing that comes out of him right off the bat is worship. Immediately, like Job can't help but just go, look, I came into this world without anything. I'm gonna leave without anything. I understand that. He's like orienting his mind. He goes, but blessed be the name of the Lord. And I think this is one of those things that, again, as, as, as believers, we go, right, what do we do with pain, you know? If God's gonna bless us, isn't he gonna bless us physically? And I think the book of Job is really flying in the face of something that's kind of uncom uh, uncomfortable and not healthy for us, and that would be like a prosperity gospel, like this idea that, the only way that God can bless you is by making you healthy, wealthy, and wise. Like that's the only thing we're looking for is blessing here on earth. But the book of Job is 
completely different than that. What's at stake is not just Job's faith, but ours to some extent, right? Job had no idea we'd be reading this thousands of years later. What's at stake is the heavenly realm learning about God through what happens with Job. Satan and the angels are watching. They're going, what's going to happen here? They're following God's lead going, are you sure? Are you sure he's going to bounce back? In Ephesians, there's this very interesting verse in Ephesians 2 that says, the heavenly realm is looking at the church and learning about the character of God from the church. What a mind-blowing thing that the angels are looking at us going, you're teaching me a little bit more about the character of God when you're in a healthy place operating in the church. It's unbelievable. And God is looking down and going, I want to show you something through my servant, Job. Let's turn to Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5. You could go to Psalms and turn right, but you have to turn way right. Uh, Romans chapter 5. Therefore, starting in verse 1, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand and we rejoice in hope, in the hope of the glory of God. This is the part where we amen, right? We're like, yes, we didn't earn it. We didn't earn salvation. God came. He gave us joy. We rejoice in God. We're not rejoicing in anything else. We're rejoicing in the gospel. It's beautiful. And then Paul continues in verse 3. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Paul, a man who understands physical suffering very well, he said, I rejoice in my suffering because I know what it's going to produce. Spiritual development in comfort produces a hope that is weak and platitudinous and shallow in depth of maturity. If we're looking for hope and we're looking for maturity without pain, we won't find it. Now, this could be bad news. I think for people who don't have Jesus, this is bad news. But for those of us that are kingdom-minded, we know that every single thing serves to push forward the will of God everything. And this physical world is not everything that we live for. We have heaven. Most of the epistles talk about that day, the day when Jesus returns, the day when everything is set right, and we set our hope on that. But until then, we know that the brokenness is here for a reason. I love the way Tim Keller puts it. He said, everything sad is going to come untrue and it will somehow be greater for having once been broken and lost. What a beautiful thing to anchor our hope into. Years ago, I, um, I worked with my dad um, in his engineering firm, and uh, I had an office right next to him. 
And uh, working with family is, it's mostly good, right? It's mostly good. Um, and uh, I had heard my dad uh, answer a lot of calls next to me and uh, heard him, you know, talking about business stuff or whatever. Um, he answered a phone call one day and I could tell his, his, his voice was a little bit different and I couldn't tell quite what he was saying or what he, who he was talking to. And he came into my office and he had tears in his eyes and he said, um, he said, that was your grandpa talking to me and he said, um, his dad. And he said, uh, he has stage four lung cancer. And, um, and the thing with my, with my dad and his dad is there was uh, a, l a little tension in their relationship. So my grandpa uh, left my dad and his brothers when they were still very young, um, left the family for another woman, and it caused a lot of pain and broken relationship. My dad did not have a great relationship with uh, his dad. And I knew him, and I, I loved him as my grandpa, but I knew there was tension there, you know. And my dad... My dad bought a Bible for my grandpa, and he, he flew out. And like I was telling you in the beginning of the sermon, I was the first Christian in my family. And my dad started believing in Jesus after years of me praying for him and talking to him. And I was so amazed. I was like, what a miracle. Like, God saved my dad through me. It seems so weird and crazy. Then my dad went back to Maryland where my grandpa had cancer and he shared Jesus with my grandpa. And my grandpa on his deathbed became a Christian. And my dad bought him his very first Bible. And you never know what the Lord's gonna do. You never know what the Lord's gonna do. And not to make it light if you're going through something really painful, not to, to blow past it, because we can't, we can't do that. The Bible says to cry with those who are crying. Like we don't... You don't have to have answers for everything, but sometimes, and when those moments come, those sometimes come, you have to really grab a hold of them, but sometimes you look back on your life and you go, this is what the Lord did. And you have to leverage that for the future that you don't see and you don't understand yet and go, God, I don't understand it, but you're gonna pull something around. I know it. I know it. And this is the kind of hope we want, right? We don't want shallow hope. Living Streams, this has never been a church of a bunch of hype, you know, a bunch of us going, hey, just rejoice in the Lord because we're telling you to, you know, like, no, like, there's pain in the world. We understand that. But the Lord is good. The Lord's good in spite of all of it. And as we're going in the book of Job, again, this is just, this is just chapter one. We got, we got a lot more to talk about. But our heart is not to wallow in the pain to use it as fuel for our faith in the future. We have to go, Lord, I don't understand, but I'm gonna choose to trust. Let's spend a little time in prayer. Um, we, we've been talking as a, as a team and trying to create a little bit more space for prayer in our services. Um, sometimes, you know, you'll hear a great sermon. All of that is awesome. Uh, sometimes we'll hear a really great song. All of that is really great. But one word from the Lord can change anything. And I want to take a couple of minutes, just uh, David will play a little bit of music here. And, um, but I want you and the Lord to just pause. And the thing I wrote down is I said, pray about that one thing. And you know what that one thing is. I have no idea, but you know what that one thing is. 
that thing that's keeping you up at night, that thing that you just can't understand. And just take a minute, maybe even as an act of faith, pull out your phone, go to your notes section, maybe pull out a piece of paper and a pen, and just say, Lord, this is what I'm feeling with this thing that I'm facing, but what do you have to say? Just take a couple of minutes, just you and the Lord. Jesus, we, um, we thank you that as we read through the book of Job and seeing the pain that he went through, Lord, we thank you that unlike any other religion in the world, that Jesus, you actually came down to earth and you experienced all the pain and separation Thank you that, God, you're not a God that's distant, but you're so near to the brokenhearted. Thank you, Lord. Thank you that you're not a God who can't understand what we're up against, because, Jesus, you went up against it all. And you went through such injustice. You went through such betrayal with your friends betraying you. You went through such loneliness on the cross. broken physically you went through so much pain Jesus I thank you that we're not alone in it Where, wherever we're at we're not alone in it and you're with us yes Lord let's take communion if you've got your communion cup go ahead and grab it and if you need one we have our ushers walking around On the night that Jesus was betrayed by one of his friends, on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread and he broke it and he said, this is my body which is broken for you. Take in remembrance of me. Go ahead and take 
take the bread. And in the same way, Jesus took the wine and he said, this represents the blood of my new covenant with you. Take in remembrance of me. Go ahead and take it. Jesus, thank you for your gospel. Thank you that in heaviness, God, you give the oil of gladness, that somehow, God, that we can find joy in the midst of whatever we're up against. Whatever we're up against, God, I pray that you would raise our joy and our faith in you. Lord, teach us how to endure like you did. Teach us how to forgive like you did. Yeah, in Jesus' name. Amen.